is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yes, today on the Country Hour, strap yourselves in because we're taking a ride in a fully electric EV ute. Do not adjust your sets. This is what it sounds like. That sound and a whole lot more coming towards you on the Country Hour today. I want to know from you, though, what questions do you have? What does an electric ute need to be able to do for it to be viable in Australian agriculture? You tell me, what does the ute need to be able to do to make it work on your farm? 1300 You can call with that number. You can text as well, 0467 842 I am interested in what you think a ute needs to do to to make it something that works. So get your thinking caps on. I want to hear from you today on The Country Hour. We'll also talk to a man who tests agricultural equipment for a living to find out what kinds of things he wants to know about EV utes as well. Plus, away from that, buybacks are back. Water buybacks in the Murray-Darling Basin are back after an announcement from Water Minister Tanya Plibersek. We'll tell you when and how today on the program too. But right now, let's get some rural news. A lot of it coming from Northern Australia today with Angus Verley. G'day, Angus. G'day, Was The new head of Cattle Australia, the group to represent beef farmers in Australia, isn't saying much about the direction he intends to take the new organisation. Luke Bowen, who was head of the NT Cattlemen's Association during the live export shutdown and is the first chief executive of Cattle Australia, refused to comment on legal challenges facing the new organisation nor the fact there is only one woman on the lobby group's board. He says the cattle industry is in his blood and he's excited to take on the role. Well, I think I'll take direction uh, from the board and the policy council, clearly. I'm not in the job yet. I've got plenty to do in this current job. We've got a lot of challenges with biosecurity and um, a number of other things. So, But I'll be taking direction and and my my mission will be set by uh, the priorities that the board and the policy council uh, establish. It's been, I think it's fair to say, a bit of a rocky road to get to this point for Cattle Australia. Is this organisation still facing legal challenges? Um, I can't comment on that, but I, I, uh, so I'll, I'll abstain from making any comment on that. Uh, but I think we've got a positive way forward from what I understand. Okay. What are you most excited about in this gig? Oh, look, this is in my DNA, Matt. Um, I love this stuff. Staying in Northern Australia... One of the most popular and important websites for land managers is under threat. I'm talking about the North Australia Fire Information Site, best known as NAFI, which this year is celebrating its 20th birthday, and it's more popular than ever. Since 2015, the number of users logging on has more than tripled. But those running the site aren't celebrating its anniversary yet because, once again, NAFI is facing an uncertain future with its funding set to run out in June. Rowan Fisher from Charles Darwin University says the important resource may not be around for much longer. So uh, currently we're not funded uh, um, after the the middle of uh, this year. Um, We're in current talks with uh, the federal government and hoping to get three-year funding, but um, that hasn't been confirmed and decided. So it's always... uh, frustrating that uh, this really significant industry but also the incredible land management story of fire management across the north um, one of the resources that underpins it uh, hasn't been a a priority of the federal government today. An advocate for electronic identification of sheep says there is nothing to be feared by Australia opting to adopt 
a national EID scheme. Victoria has already moved to compulsory electronic identification of sheep, but a survey from New South Wales farmers estimated 80% of farmers are not using the technology, and the lobby group says the $20 million package from the Commonwealth won't be enough to help farmers meet the 2025 deadline. Matthew Blythe, a UK-based lamb producer and independent advisor, is currently in Australia as part of his Nuffield scholarship. He says the benefits clearly outweigh the costs of an EID scheme. I think the biggest cost benefit we forget about, and when I started this journey on my Nuffield, I hadn't even dawned on me. Why are you looking at bringing EID in? Because you're scared of foot and mouth, which I totally agree with you should be you're scared of a disease outbreak and not tracing it if that disease hit this country you have lost the uk market you've lost your world market your farmers then will be on their knees so that's the biggest cost benefit that we don't see but also the bigger cost benefit is once you get your head around it is how you can look at your business if you go and look at amazon google They're processing data to work out what we want in front of us, ads, this, that and the other. Why don't we do the same thing for our livestock? Work out what suits them, what works for them and actually tailor our businesses to make them work as efficiently as what Google and Amazon do for us. And after a month-long delay to the start of harvest due to cooler and wetter conditions, a Glasshouse Mountains lychee grower is picking what could be the best crop her family has ever grown. And despite missing the lucrative period of Chinese New Year, prices are still high for the bumper crop. Here's Karen Martin from Yanala Farms in the Glasshouse Mountains, speaking from the top of a tree in a cherry picker about what a good season it's been. We're having a really great season. The season this year has been a bit different. We're about a month late from when we started picking in previous years. So we think we've got another couple of weeks to go yet and the fruit on the trees, it's just loaded and we've actually added another cherry picker onto our picking team. The previous years have been up and down with hail and different things, but the trees, for whatever reason, whether it was the rain that we had last year, the solid rain over that six-month period has really... Uh, spurned the trees on and yeah they're looking fantastic and was that's it for rural news thanks very much for that angus the victorian country hour with warwick long on abc radio victoria look you're about to take a drive in an electric vehicle an electric ute the first of its kind in australia that you can buy but does it stand the test for agriculture or do you have to wait for for future versions to see if it'll be more fit for purpose for your farm. Today I'm asking you, what would it take? What does an EV need to be able to do to work for your farm? And here are some of your texts. Um, uh, Electric farm vehicles, if they can cover the majority of the work on privately owned land but are registered for the road, will the Vic government still tax their kilometres on the odometer? Probably a discussion for another day, but thank you for that. Be lightweight, four-wheel drive, with a tray and last all day checking ewes and lambs without having to be recharged until overnight is Scott from Hamilton's idea. Scott, though, from northeast Victoria, a dairy farmer, says it needs to be powerful with torque for towing and have at least 500 kilometres battery capability. If the weight is equivalent to the traditional combustion engine variety, then it should be all good. Uh, And then there are more text coming in and we'll go to those as we speak. Robert from Robinvale's on the line 1300 977 222 which is the number you can call if you'd like. G'day Robert. 
How you going? What did you want to know about an EV for it to work in your context? Look, as far as um, there's plenty, there's plenty to unpack with these things. But as far as disposal of batteries, um, you know, when the battery life uh, demises, what's the cost of a battery? But the biggest thing, especially in Northwest Victoria, which a lot of horticulturalists up here have had big troubles with, is you know we're being held to a very high ethical standard here. And I do believe that there's big issues with the primary products that go into the lithium batteries in EVs, and not just EVs, but all devices, the device that I'm on right now and the devices that are in laptops and all that sort of stuff. You know, are they ethically sourced from overseas countries? Get your point. Thank you very much for your call. I do wonder if you hold the same standards to cars that you're driving now or, or creating a new argument, but it's fair enough to raise, and we open the lines for you to do that, 1300 977 If you want to call, let's go driving, shall we, on the program now. The first fully electric utes in Australia on a tour to show farmers what it can do, probably coming to a field day near you. But with only a 330-kilometre range and a one-tonne towing capacity, is this LDV ute fit for purpose or just a gateway to future technology? To learn more about it, I went for a drive. It's big metallic blue, and the best way to describe it is it kind of looks like a Hilux. This is a very different kind of ute, though. The first EV ute in Australia that people can buy. It has around a six-figure price tag, and it's about to go on a regional tour to show people what utes like this can do. With it, with the keys in his hand, is Ben Lever. He's a regional clean transport organiser at Solar Citizens, which describes itself as a community organisation campaigning for more clean energy and clean transport. So can this ute, or other EV utes, stand the test of Australian agriculture? Let's go and find out. So this is the first commercially available uh, electric ute in Australia. Um, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that people were saying that electric utes didn't exist anywhere in the world. Well, here it is right now. I'm touching it as we speak. Looks pretty real to me. That's it. It's no unicorn. It's right here. Ben, tell me a little bit about this car. It's got a huge battery on it, um, about 88 kilowatts, and, you know, it it's basically can do the things that a ute can do, but cleaner. What's it like to drive? So it feels very similar to any other ute to drive, really. Um, it's got a lot of acceleration, which is always a good thing, um, but handles very much the same as, as any other ute you'd be used to. Should I be scared? Definitely not. Should we go for a drive? Let's do it. All right, we're in the car at the moment. Ben's got it. Ben, before we start the car, it's a bit like a normal ute on the inside, probably a little bit more modern looking with a bit of a, a computer type display, but that's about it. Yeah, that's it. It's very much going to be like any other ute that you're used to, except it's going to be much cleaner for the environment and much better for your hip pocket, uh, not having to fill up with your petrol all the time. And I notice you've, you've got a key. No, that's it. Um, it's a you know, basic turnkey situation. Um, no, no, nothing fancy. Um, just getting the job done. All right, I better put my seatbelt on and then we should go. It's pretty smooth as we just drive off. You just turn off and go. The first thing I notice, Ben, is it's pretty quiet. Yeah, it's very quiet. It actually emits a little bit of a musical note um, just to, so that you can hear it coming for safety reasons. Otherwise, it would be totally silent. And in terms of the power in it as well, how fast is it? Oh, there we go. I can feel that. 
yeah, got a little bit of um, acceleration to it. Um, you know, quite, quite a bit of torque. Um, the beautiful thing about an electric motor is that all of the torque is available to you as soon as you put your foot down. It's not just a particular part of the rev range like with a combustion engine. So really does pick up and go whenever you want it to. So it almost goes faster immediately than a normal car. That's right. It just accelerates straight off the line with no hassles whatsoever. I could feel that. My, you basically put my bum back in the seat when you put the foot down then. That's it. it will, if you put the foot down, it will go like the clappers. How much battery life does this car have? So this has 88 kilowatt hours, um, which for this car is, is about uh, 330 kilometres is the estimated range. In terms of then what people will get out of this car, you know, how long can they use it for and then how long are they looking at charging it for? So it'll be a few hundred k's of, of driving. Um, if you can charge it overnight in your home, that's often the best option, um, the cheapest option and the, the most convenient. Um, if you can go to a, a fast charger on a highway or something like that, you can uh, fill it up to about 80% in about 45 minutes. So you can do it quite quickly if you do need to go on a road trip. Are most farmers going to be able to put sort of some f sort of charging infrastructure in their homes or be able to use their power points at their home to at least get charge in a reasonable amount of time for a car like this? Yeah, so um, the, the higher phase power and the, the more power you can deliver to the car, obviously the better and the faster it will charge. Um, but basically anyone with an electricity connection can at least do those kind of top-ups um, every night and, and just keep things close uh, to, to the top and go from there. It was only a few months ago we were hearing people say that electric utes don't exist. Um, this is the first of many. There's a lot of other models that are available overseas and going to be available uh, in the coming months and years. And it's really just about making sure that we can get them to Australia at an affordable price. What's different about driving this car from you from the experience-wise compared to a normal car? So there's no vibration, no uh, smell of, of petrol or diesel, which is really nice. Um, and the, the, quiet, uh, the quietness is also really pleasant. Um, don't have any... Uh, no, noise as the engine turns over. Also in the car with us today as we're driving along we've just turned onto uh, the Golden Valley Highway here in Shepparton and enjoying the traffic. I don't know if anybody else driving around has realised what we're in at the moment but it is interesting to uh, to experience the road. Emily Crawford's with us in the back of the car with us so I'm going to turn around and try and stretch my arm out towards you Emma. Emily you're off a, a dairy farm close to here. Is it exciting to be in a car like this or think about technology like this for your farm? Uh, yes, Warwick, it is. I think dairy farmers and farmers would be really interested to know that there might be a possibility of getting electric vehicles that will actually do what they need them to do and have large towing capacities and then, you know, we can actually have the options of reducing carbon emissions and saving money on diesel. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think it's important for farmers to be looking at things like electric vehicles and, and moving away from fossil fuels? Uh, well, I think all farmers feel pretty strongly that we want to try to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, you know, we've all experienced floods and hailstorms and lots of adverse weather here in the last few months. And so I think everyone wants to try and improve that situation. And... The transport industry is one of the major emitters in Australia and I think Australian farmers would like to be a part of that journey. And your immediate thoughts now, you're sitting in here and we're going for a drive? Uh, yeah, it's great. Feels like a normal ute to me. 
and um... Emily I suppose just just on that in terms of I'd imagine that the farmer mind of yours starts ticking over to think where this works and and where you'd have questions about how it would work in your farming environment things like battery life things like the ability to be able to tow in something like this is that where your mind immediately goes? Yeah, it is. I mean, we do um, big distances living in the country and I guess we also um, not going to be able to just charge it at charging stations. We're going to have to have something on farm and whether it's going to be compatible with our solar panels and we can charge that way. Um, and I have heard of other electric vehicles like the Ford F-150 overseas that's got amazing towing capacity and everything a farmer would want but it's just simply not available here so I think farmers and Australians in general just want to have choice and we want to be able to choose a vehicle that's going to suit our circumstances and there's just not the range available here that there is overseas. Is that frustrating I suppose from from your point of view that you know that there's other vehicles out there that might suit better that aren't available yet? Yeah, it is frustrating. I think we pride ourselves as farmers being at the cutting edge of technology and adapting new technologies to improve. And so to know that we're using really antiquated vehicles and that the government policy is not there to encourage car makers to bring in fuel efficient vehicles is, is just disappointing actually. Ben Levers with us as we're cruising through uh, downtown Shepherd and now we're almost making our way in, into town. Ben, a couple of things I wanted to touch off. One, one towing. Can you tow with a ute like this? Absolutely you can. Um, there's a tow ball that's uh, one of the options for this vehicle um, from the factory and it's got a, a thousand kilo uh, capacity to tow. Does that affect your battery life greatly? Yeah, so obviously the more the more weight you're carrying, uh, the more work the engine has to do, so it does reduce the, the range a bit, um, but it's, it is definitely capable of it. Do you know by how much? Like, does it halve your, your battery life, or a third, or, or three quarters? What? Yeah, not, not too sure exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably something to, to work out as well. Emily was talking then about the options. This is the first commercially available uh, ute, electric ute in Australia. There are others overseas. What's holding back other car manufacturers from introducing utes like this to Australia? So in a lot of our peer nations, um, the other sort of advanced economies, they have fuel efficiency standards that require the car companies to bring in a range of vehicles, some of which are, are much more cleaner and efficient, and that includes a, a good mix of electric vehicles as well. Because Australia doesn't really have these standards, we're at the bottom of the queue, and um, we just... Jump in that lane while you're talking about this, Sorry. if you can. The car manufacturers are prioritising those other nations for their electric vehicles. Because they've only got a limited supply, they put them where they have to put them because of the, the rules. So because we are at the back of the queue, we don't get the variety of models and we also get a very limited run, which usually sells out in you know a matter of minutes in some cases. So, yeah, literally there's only so many of these that are being made at the moment and, and as you say, they're, they're going to the countries that are, that are legislating the need for them over Australia. Um, that makes this car so interesting, doesn't it? Being the, the first commercially available in Australia. Has there been much interest in, in uh, where you've taken this so far? Yeah, look, everyone that we've uh, showed it to so far is, is really interested to see it and to hear it. Um, it makes sort of a, a, a sort of musical note as we're driving around rather than the rumbling of the diesel and that always turns a lot of heads. What are the, the major criticisms for a car like this at the moment? 
Um, so a lot of people are really concerned about the range, um, and that's one of the reasons that we are so keen to see these other models that do have a, a larger battery and longer range uh, coming into the country, as well as seeing the, the charging network continue to roll out. Um, the other big one is the upfront cost, um, and that's one of the reasons that we're keen to see you know, more affordable models that are available in Europe um, be brought into the country, and to see a little bit more competition to help drive down those prices. What does a car like this cost? So this one is nearly $100,000, but if we look in New Zealand, it's about $20,000 cheaper because they have those uh, standards that are driving the prices down. So it's a really clear example of, of how the right policies can make a big difference to uh, individual uh, buyers. So this same car is almost $20,000 cheaper in New Zealand? That's right. This being the first in Australia, is this, for want of a better term, can electric utes only get better from here is this literally the the base of what we will see and we will see improvements from here that's it this is really the the jumping off point the the leading edge of of the utes um they're only going to get bigger better uh more range uh more mod cons it's only going to go up from here australians love a ute how long do you think it'll take australians to warm to the idea of electric utes so if you look worldwide the corolla is one of the best-selling cars of all types you know of all time but one of the others is the ford f-150 and so the ford f-150 lightning the electric version of that is potentially on its way if we can uh, get that into the country i think australians will absolutely lap them up so in terms of the ford f-150 what does that offer in terms of power let's say and and battery life compared to this car so uh the torque for example is about triple this one which is well over double um a ford ranger or a hilux at the moment so it's a really hugely powerful vehicle anything that you want to do in terms of towing or carrying loads it'll be able to handle with a greater ease yes (laughs) no one will probably hear it because the car's so quiet but we'll turn it off and jump out after a drive like that thanks thanks for taking us for a cruise all right thanks for coming along so emily you're a dairy farmer in chatura we've been for the drive now what do you make of it oh i think it's really exciting it's a great vehicle and just seems like a normal ute to me Uh, and i think it's just really exciting if we're starting to see them coming into the country Um, as a farmer i'd like to get an electric vehicle and i'd like them you know machinery and vehicles to be electric so we can start reducing our carbon emissions on farm and saving on our diesel bills. Yeah, I think dairy farmers need to aim to be carbon neutral in the near future and, you know, the transport industry is one of the biggest emitters in the country and our milk does a lot of miles, so all the technology that comes into the country and starts driving towards a fully electric transport market is in our favour. How long do you think it'll take before you see a ute like this one on your farm? I don't know. This might be a ute that we'd buy, but um, you know, we need something that's probably equivalent to a Land Cruiser or an F-150, something that we're going to tow, something that's versatile. Uh, and I think you know, all farmers need to make their own choices and we want to be able to choose. We don't just want to have the one ute. That's Emily Crawford ending that story, a Chichura dairy farmer, a member of Farmers for Climate Action speaking there. You also heard from Ben Lever, who is a regional clean transport organiser at Solar Citizens, which describes itself as an independent community organisation campaigning for more clean energy and clean transport. So a 330 kilometre range, a one tonne towing capacity, 
would an electric ute like that be fit for purpose for you and your agricultural business or would you like to see more? You can let us know, 1300 977 two to call or text 0467 842 722. Ben White is a research engineer with the Kandinan Group, tests a bunch of agricultural equipment and can join you now. Welcome to the Country Hour. G'day, Ori. Uh, EV utes, is this the new frontier, I suppose, of agricultural equipment uh, that can turn electric that is uh, soon to be in an, in an Australia and maybe at a dealership near you? Yeah, well, look, it's probably one of the the easier things to uh, electrify, if you like, uh, on farm. And I think, uh, you know, it's great to see the, the, the technology and, and even if it's a, a quite a base model, um, uh, as, as was pointed out in, in uh, your little drive there, Warwick, I think uh, it's good to see the tech there and, and to see, you know, what will probably be the first step in an evolution of vehicles in the future. Um, but, of course, you know, Emily made a very good point. Um, we really need something that's equivalent, that's going to be fit for purpose. And, and, uh, and when we say it's equivalent, it's got to be as good as or if not better than, uh, than the, the current vehicles we've got uh, with regard to range, capacity and, and, uh, and towing uh, ability as well. So all those things need to come into play. And particularly a one-tonne towing capacity that's going to, to lead to a shorter driving experience when there's only 330 kilometres in an ideal world doesn't sound like will it would entice many farmers. Is that fair to say? Oh, look, I think that's fair to say. Probably the bigger issue is that uh, that particular vehicle is only uh, a two-wheel drive, so it's only rear-wheel drive. Uh, I would think that most cockies would be looking for um, for something that's four-wheel drive. Um, you know, as, uh, as you know, some of you, your text messages uh, alluded to earlier, we want to be able to drive through the paddock, we want to go and check stock, we want to be able to, you know, carry loads to and from town. So, you know, um, again, it comes back to that equivalence and making sure that we've got something that's, uh, that's going to do the job that we needed to do. So with your testing hat on, going through the things in your mind you'd like to see become available, what are the things that you're looking forward, looking for in an EV ute in the future? Oh, look, I think, you know, it's been mentioned, the range is a big issue, and, and we do big Ks in Australia, um, and, and uh, probably more than anyone would do in, in Europe, say, on farm, or, or probably even in the US. Um, so, you know, range is a, is a big deal, and anyone who's driven a, an EV, and I have uh, have a few times, uh, range anxiety is a real thing. You know, so you're continually looking at the, at the gauge, and... Um, I guess planning where your next charge point's going to be, and so there's a, there's a little bit of uh, uh, I guess anxiety and, and also planning that needs to be built into that, and that's okay. That's that's part of uh, what we need to do. Uh, once that range sort of is equivalent to what we've got from a diesel perspective, uh, you know, if we're getting sort of seven, eight hundred, nine hundred k's to a, a, a charge, uh, as we would a, a tank of, of fuel, then you know that probably will dissipate a little bit. So yeah, range is a big one. Towing uh, towing capacity is. is um, is important and uh, and certainly that was uh, mentioned. But I think uh, you know there's there's obviously other vehicles out there that uh, from an EV perspective and the Ford uh, F-150 Lightning is is a good example. It's got about four and a half ton towing capacity. Um, so you know there are other options out there that uh, that probably do tick a few more boxes. But as I say, it's good to see the tech here and the conversation starting. Yeah. So we've had. Uh, electric quads, electric side-by-side vehicles. Now there's electric utes. Where yeah. are electric vehicles going for in agriculture? Do we have electric tractors yet? Yeah, look, there are a couple uh, on the market. Um, there's a, a few being brought to market uh, in the next uh, couple of years. They're all pretty small, though, Warwick. You know, we're sort of talking, um, you know, that 100-horsepower equivalent sort of size, which is good for horticulturalists and and, uh, and smaller uh, area operators who aren't requiring that, that big power for 
for, say, tillage or, or uh, any you know, heavy-duty sort of work. Uh, so, you know, they're out there. Fant have got one. Deer are bringing one uh, next year. So, you know, people should keep an eye out for that. I think one of the interesting things that, that um, you know, this, this all sort of points towards is that, you know, the, the, electri- uh, the electrical drive systems is, is probably what's key to all of this and, and, um, and the development of those in an EV sense uh, whether that's you know uh, wheel motors on tractors etc et or or components or even utes, uh, you know the development of that probably will will see, I guess the face of what we're driving, uh, regardless whether it's tractors or utes, uh, change in the future purely because you know we might move to a, a, a I guess a uh, an intermediate stage where we're doing diesel electric, so you know diesel engine uh, driving electric wheel motors, you know, and that's that's pretty exciting because they offer uh, a lot of the same sort of benefits, you know zero. Uh, RPM uh, still with 100% torque and, and also you know high levels of efficiency in terms of um, power transmission. So yeah, I think that's um, that's exciting. Oh, there's a fun conversation for another day when we have more time. Ben White, thank you very much for joining us. Great to chat, Warwick. Ben White, research engineer at the Kindinen Group, taking you through his thoughts on electric utes, but also what's out there maybe in the future for agriculture in Australia as well. I am late for the news. Let's head to the regional newsroom right now to find out what's making headlines. Peter Sanders is there for us this afternoon. Good afternoon, Peter. G'day, Warwick. A man has died in a crash on the Western Highway at Lillimer near the South Australian border yesterday afternoon. His passenger, a woman believed to be in her 30s, received life-threatening injuries after they were ejected from a hatchback that rolled at about 2.30. The man, who is yet to be identified, died at the scene while the woman was flown to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne in a serious condition. Police say they've seized more than 400 cannabis plants from a property just outside Shepparton in Victoria's north. Investigators searched a home in Orvale Road in Orvale yesterday morning, taking the plants estimated to be worth more than $1 million. No arrests have been made and investigations remain ongoing. The owner of a far west Victoria hotel is overwhelmed by the community's support since a car smashed into his venue. Three rooms were nearly destroyed when a car ploughed through the border inn in Aspley last November. Today, a 33-year-old Mort Lake man charged in relation to the incident had his case adjourned until May 4th. Police are investigating a suspicious house fire in Albury that took place during the early hours of this morning. Emergency services were called to a home on Captain Cook Drive in Glenroy just before 12.15 following reports of a fire. Firefighters extinguished the blaze and contained the damage to one room, with the home vacant at the time and no injuries reported. Parents and carers are being urged to keep young children at home if they are sick amid a rise in gastro outbreaks at Victoria's childcare centres. There have been 103 outbreaks of gastro in the first two months of this year, compared with 69, which is the the five-year average for the same period. Victoria's Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton says symptoms can take up to three days to develop and usually last one to two days. The community at the Grampians Health Annual General Meeting has rallied around the long-standing GP anaesthetist installed yesterday. His departure over a contract dispute has raised, was raised repeatedly by distressed community members worried about their town's health care. Ben Kelly, Chief Operating Officer of Grampians Health, says the government and industry guidelines for surgeries had become stricter in recent years. Plans for a dementia respite centre in Woodend North are a step closer to being realised. The Macedon Ranges Shire Council has given the green light for a permit for the project at Old Lansfield Road. The plans for a short-term day respite for up to 15 people at a time with no, over- with no overnight stay in a farm-style rural setting. 
And police are praising the efforts of two neighbours who swam across a creek to rescue an elderly woman in her 80s from a house fire in southwest Victoria overnight. Cobden Sergeant Craig Jenkins says the farmhouse has been completely destroyed by the blaze, which broke out at around 8pm last night in Cordervale, nearly 12 apostles. The woman, who was home at the time, was treated by paramedics on site and was uninjured. And Warwick, that's the latest. Thanks very much for that, Peter. Peter Sanders there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Indeed you are. Many of you have great questions coming in on the text line uh, and I'm sorry I can't answer them all, but I did like a couple of these. Uh, James in Yarrawonga asking, pretty pertinent question, um, how does this help carbon uh, emissions if it's moving pressure onto already strained power grid? Dr. Carl actually does an explanation of that. That's quite well, really interesting. It's worth asking the question of him when he's on in on regional drive in the afternoons as well. But James also says, I'm also wondering with five 100 kilogram people in there, does the towing capacity drop to 500 kilos? I don't know the answer to that, James. That's a really good question. Thanks for asking that as well. And I loved this from Gavin, who really wanted a circle work test. And sorry, Gavin, I didn't bring that to you. Maybe next time. Uh, and maybe that's a, a question we can ask on your behalf. More of your texts are flooding in. I'll go through some of those in a moment. If you want to tell us what an electric ute would need to be able to do to you know, be working on your farm, you can let us know. 0467 842 722. Let's get the weather information right now, though, with Christy Johnson, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Christy. Good afternoon, Warwick. How's it looking? Getting warmer? Yeah, getting warmer. Um, it's slowly warming up today. We're up to about 30 at Mildura so far. We're, we're looking at heading for a top of about 36 at Mildura today, 35 at Horsham uh, and at Hamilton, 34 at Swan Hill and Warrnambool, uh, 32 in Bendigo, Shepparton, Echuca, Seymour and Wangaratta, 31 in Ballarat, 28 at Sale and Bairnsdale. So, um, yeah, pretty nice uh, day, plenty of sunshine, northerly winds, uh, a little bit gusty around particularly the central ranges this morning, but they're easing off a bit um, this afternoon. They will ease off a little bit this afternoon. Uh, otherwise, not much to speak about today. And tomorrow is um, similarly a carbon copy. Actually, I should mention we do have high fire danger today uh, across most of western and central parts of the state. Uh, tomorrow is going to be a very similar day, but we do have just a little bit more wind. Uh, the temperatures may be a degree or two higher. We're getting up to 38 for Mildura tomorrow, uh, up into the sort of mid, mid-30s for most of the, the north and into uh, the, the low 30s for um, much of the south. So uh, it is looking like, uh, in fact, even the mid-30s for some parts of the southwest. So it is a, a hotter day tomorrow, a bit more northerly wind, and that's going to give us um, some extreme fire danger, particularly through the uh, the southwest and the Wimmera um, district, and uh, high fire dangers through rest, the rest of western and central areas. So, something to be quite um, aware of tomorrow. Uh, with that, otherwise, the day's looking fairly similar to today, with just sort of sunny skies and fresh northerly winds. The difference is we may see a trough move into the far west later tomorrow. And that could give us the odd shower or maybe even some rumbles of thunder. And uh, some of those rumbles of thunder may not produce much in the way of, of rainfall. In fact, there's likely to be pretty low rainfall totals out of any showers or storms. Um, so there is that risk of dry lightning. So that's uh, another concern about um, 
for fire starts. So, yeah, just asking everyone to be aware, um, obviously being fire safe uh, in terms of human behaviour, but also watching for some of those potential natural ignitions as well. Um, and that trough is ahead of the change, which is going to be coming through on Saturday. So Saturday is our change day. At this stage, the timing of the change looks like moving into uh, Western Districts through the morning. So initially, there'll be that prefrontal trough, which gets in late Friday night, and it'll pretty much stall overnight, and then it'll move slowly through the Western Districts on Saturday morning. Uh, and the actual cold front, which will be sweeping through the, the sort of south of the state, will catch up to that uh, Saturday afternoon. Um, and then it'll move through sort of central parts during the afternoon and, and into the east in the evening. And uh, obviously that timing will be refined close to the time, but it is a little bit faster than we were expecting um, in pre from previous uh, runs of our modelling. So at the moment we've got temperatures into the mid to high 20s in the southwest and the low 30s across most of the rest of the state. Uh, it's possible that when we put out the forecast this afternoon, that those will be a touch lower. So with that front coming through, the, the cool change coming through just a little bit faster, we might see relief a little bit earlier and, and see the temperatures slightly lower than that. Um, there could be some showers and possibly some thunderstorms with that change as well. Again, not expecting particularly high rainfall totals as the air is very dry underneath, um, or particularly ahead of the change. So a lot of it will evaporate before it hits the ground. Um, but, we, yeah, we are expecting some showers and, as I say, some storms on Saturday. Um, and, so, yeah, the strengthening northerly winds, we'll, we will be watching to see whether we need uh, a severe weather warning for damaging wind gusts uh, for the winds picking up on Saturday morning. But uh, at this stage, it's looking like perhaps just below warning thresholds, but definitely a windy day uh, there. After we get through that, um, the cool change comes through and it's much much cooler period uh, from Sunday onwards. So for Sunday, looking at temperatures in the south, in the sort of back into the 20s and into the high 20s or maybe just around the 30-degree mark in the north. Uh, Monday, pretty similar. Um, both days we could see a little bit of shower activity in the south with some southerly winds just pushing some moisture onshore, uh, but nothing really getting north of the ranges and shouldn't be too much in terms of rainfall totals either. Uh, Tuesday is looking pretty similar as well, fairly mild, um, maybe the odd spot of rainfall in the south, but probably barely anything measurable. Uh, but we do have a bit of a cold front that moves in um, probably late Tuesday and then through Wednesday morning, and that might push some showers through the south, particularly on Wednesday. Uh, and it um, doesn't really make a huge difference to the temperatures, just drops them back a little bit, uh, but still looking at temperatures in the 20s across the state by Wednesday just a bit more shower activity through through on and south of the ranges into Wednesday, but that clears away quite quickly by Thursday with the next ridge moving in. So really the story is pretty hot uh, with uh, high fire dangers or high to extreme fire dangers for today and tomorrow. We do also have the heat wave warning for um, severe heat wave over the southwest district. Uh, most of the rest of the south and west has a low intensity heat wave, um, and that's for that period, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, so we're in the middle of that right now. Um, so you're hot in the short term, uh, change coming through Saturday and then much milder uh, from Sunday onwards with maybe just the odd shower in the south, but not too much in terms of rainfall. Certainly cooler than at least next week. That's something. Christy, thank you very much for that. No problem. Thanks, Warwick. Senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau taking us through 
the full forecast there. A lot of your text on EV utes still coming in. I probably can't get to all of them, but I'll try and get the best cross-section I can. I like this high was. I know it's the way of the future, but gee, I'm going to miss the sounds of a V8. Maybe there's a category for that, an EV that sounds like a V8. Uh, Warwick, a 330-kilometre range wouldn't even get me to Melbourne and back without substantially increasing the trip time without having with having to charge it. It only takes me five min- minutes to fill up with fuel, says Chris. Uh, Lindsay says, why don't we have electric vehicles widely available? It's simple. There was a decade of neglect- neglectful conservative government policies. They're the thoughts of Lindsay. Macca says, come on, Warwick. EV Ute, not on. Sticking with my turbo diesel ute smooth quiet powerful we've got enough strain on electricity power supply no ifs no ahs says maca one hundred thousand dollars to rattle around the paddock maybe not a thousand kilogram towing is only a toy says jeff seriously a one-ton towing capacity says another texter my atv can do that this one says, Warwick, farmers being encouraged to use electric vehicles. How hypocritical when the government exports so much oil and coal for other countries to burn. Australia contributes uh, less than 1% of the population, so why go green, says Dave in Lake Ties. Dave, an argument against that is that per capita we're quite high polluters, but I can leave that to you to debate another time. This one says uh, all outlying properties are going to need power supply upgrades to service charging requirements. Uh, Glenn says... If it wants to work on my farm, it needs to be 4 by 4 tow 3 tonne, 400 kilometres on a charge and not weigh like lead so it can get across a wet paddock. That's what Glenn needs on his property. Thanks for that, Glenn. Kim says, how much can it tow? And can I fit a mattress in the back for the Denny Ute Master? Important details indeed, Kim. Thank you very much for asking that. It definitely looked mattress ready in the back. Towing, only one tonne, as we've heard today. Uh, Sam saying I'm agreeing with those comments that it needs to be able to tow and get reasonable mileage, but I'm going to follow this with interest. And Jane says, can I actually afford it? If I can, I own it in, in regional Western Australia and want to visit family in Esperance. I want to go to Kalgoorlie to, to get there. What's the go with charging on long remote highways and byways? Don't tell me that not everyone does a trip like that. That's interesting, Jane. And that is what EV, as Ben White was saying, needs to to solve for a lot of the Australian experience, particularly regional Australians who are travelling longer distance. Gillian says as well, it cannot catch on fire from faulty batteries and the ability to travel over a 1,000 kilometres on a single charge and can carry at least one tonne for at least eight hours. Then it can come on my farm. They're the thoughts of farmers coming in on our text line about the EV ute. I'm interested in your thoughts. You can keep them coming. 0467 842 Love having your thoughts coming in on the country. Let's talk about other news that's happening right now, though. This broke late yesterday evening. We finally got confirmation that the federal government will buy water from irrigators to meet targets in the Murray-Darling Basin plan. They'd confirmed that in Senate estimates last year. Yesterday, we got the plan. Just over 49 gigalitres will be recovered from the Condamine Ballon in Queensland and in New South Wales from the Murray, Namoy, Border Rivers, Barwon Darling and Lachlan catchments. The open tender for the sale of this water will start on March the 23rd. The chairman of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton, says he's extremely disappointed by this announcement from government. Irrigation communities have been, ever since the Minister herself in that role, been pleading with her to to find ways of achieving the outcomes of the Basin Plan without resorting to 
going back into the water market. There are other ways. She's taken no interest in what's been suggested by irrigation communities to, to achieve outcomes for the basin plan. And that's what it's 100% about. It's about res- restoring the system to health and protecting it for when you've got dry times. And they're just completely wedded to this, this view that more water equals more outcomes, and that is not not actually the way it is. You know, there's lots of ways of achieving outcomes that doesn't require more water recovery that just means that, you know, the, the people of, of the basin, their incomes, their livelihood, their industries, their communities are at massive risk. And, and it also, it's every person in every city around the, around the country, you know, this means higher food prices, more scarcity of food. You know, in the time when we're hearing consistently out of this government about cost of living pressures and everything else, this is making it worse. So basically, the Water Minister has, despite all the representations from irrigation communities, not to restart the water wars, is absolutely restarting the water wars. Does the National Irrigators Council feel like it was consulted about this? There were definitely some rumblings that buybacks might have been back on the agenda later last year. Oh, look, it's probably the worst kept secret. There was money appropriated in the last budget, but, you know, they wouldn't say how much or what it was actually for because, you know, I mean, they said it was commercial incompetence, but it could have been commercial incompetence because they were looking at um, other ways, you know, that would need, you know, contractors to, to do works to, to improve environmental outcomes. But, no, it's clear that it's 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 outbacks. And, and her commentary just basically says, you know, these are commits commitments that were made and we're not walking away from it so there's still time for her to change her mind and take you know the better smarter um, approach to still get the outcomes but not you know basically restart the water wars I'm, I'm bloody furious about this. The catchments that are being targeted by this buyback at the moment are in New South Wales and Queensland. There is talk that there will need to be um, some water savings in the ACT as well. Why were those places chosen? The the way the basin plan worked was each individual valley across the basin had a recovery target against it. So there's water still to be recovered in the New South Wales Murray and and up in Queensland and some in the ACT. So there's still um, individual valleys that have water recovery targets that haven't been met. It's actually quite important to remember that, you know, this is 40, 46, I think 46 or 49 gigalitres that they're looking to start buying back straight away. Yeah, well, 49.2 uh, is what's aiming to be recovered across those seven catchments. Yeah. Yep. So, so there's actually also 78 gigalitres of water that they, you know, like I said, each valley had a target. They've recovered more water in some valleys and that totals up to about 78 gigalitres and, and most of that's actually in New South Wales as well. Not that this is just about New South Wales, it's about the whole the whole Murray-Darling Basin. What's the likelihood that other basin states might be targeted by buybacks further down the track? Well, the, one, of the, one of the biggest risks we still have is the supply measure part, component of the basin plan, which is basically 600 and it was well, it set at 605, it could have been up to 650, but it's at 605 and there's... And they'll talk about that on, on Friday at Ministerial Council meeting and I think there'll be acknowledgement that there looks like there's going to be around a 300 gigalitre shortfall. Now, that water can come from anywhere across the basin. And one thing that I heard the Minister say as well is, you know, we've had irrigators coming to us saying they want to sell us water. 
Well, I, I can guarantee you, and we heard also the South Australian Water Minister saying that, you know, the plan needs to be done. I can guarantee you a lot of those um, irrigators that are under enormous pressure at the moment are grape growers in South Australia who have had a terrible season with disease and everything else on top of the fact that, you know, the Chinese market closed to them. So a lot of this water is potentially going to come out of South Australia. I don't know. I don't know if the South Australian water ministers thought too long and hard about that. There are better ways. That's the thing. There are better ways of achieving the environmental outcomes without having these massive impacts and restarting the water wars. You've mentioned that there are better options. What specifically do you think they are? Well, it's about delivering environmental water to get the outcomes and but using less water. Now, there's, there's actually a project that one of the big irrigation delivery companies has put up and there's and this could be replicated across the basin where they use their system to deliver water into to wetlands and creeks to get environmental outcomes. Now now these these creeks and wetlands were never ever, even under a fully implemented basin plan, ever going to get any water except in a flood like we've just seen. So you this is on top of this is extra outcomes on top of the basin plan. But the, the thing of the beauty of it is you do it with very, very, very small volumes of water. So massive, massive environmental gains that weren't even thought of or thought possible with very small volumes of water. You basically use the irrigation network to deliver water to sites high in the landscape. That is Jeremy Morton, who's the National Irrigators Council Chair. You're speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. You'll probably hear much more on this story, but also on other issues around the Basin Plan as water ministers meet uh, later this week. Well, tomorrow now. We're on Thursday, aren't we, Warwick? But uh, th- we'll watch this space uh, indeed from here. A couple more of your texts just before we go to markets, particularly on the EVU. They're flowing in. Thick and fast. Uh, Lockie wants to know how much maintenance does it need if I plugged it into a regular domestic PowerPoint at the end of the day? How much charge would I have in the morning? Ben, not so gracious. Burn it. It's a bad joke. It'll be too expensive to charge it pretty soon, says Ben. Chris says, though, this this ute is a disgrace to EVs. I own two EVs, and this one in particular is just embarrassing. The range and price means LDV should be ashamed of themselves. I get you need to start somewhere with an EV ute, but this isn't it. Uh, and Mick says, G'day, Warwick. Welcome to the new wonderful world of net zero. For just 92990 plus on-road costs, you drive away with the brand-new made-in-China LDV. Dream of weekends away camping. Forget it. This beauty only can tow 1,000 kilometres. Is only available in two-wheel drive. We'll drive a range of 330 kilometres halved when carrying a load. Uh, you better get rid of the free floor mats and ask the salesman to throw in a generator and a jerry can. Mick, not very happy with the idea of this. Virtual sign- virtue signalling sure is an expensive business, he adds as well. So interested in your thoughts on this. Very interested in what it would take for an electric ute to be viable for your farm. What does it need to do? Keep those texts coming as well. 0467 842 722. To market, to market, let's go to livestock markets today. Brendan Fletcher is at Bansdale. G'day, Warwick. Numbers decreased to 180. That's 25 fewer with a smaller group of buyers operating in a firm market. Quality was very limited with cows representing two-thirds of the sale. The handful of young cattle sold 
mostly to local restockers, a sprinkling of ground steers and heifers sold firm. Cows sold slightly dearer, with processors loading cows for an estimated 4.96 to 6.09 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased five cents. Yearling steers sold mostly to restockers from 3.24 to 3.60. Ground steers and bullocks 3.60 to 3.67. Heavy heifers 3.04 to 3.44. Manufacturing steers 280 to 340, most light and medium weight cows 170 to 274, heavyweights 245 to 326, heavy bulls 275 to 295. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. Let's go to Hamilton Sheep. Take it away, Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers came back to 4,362 at Hamilton this week, a decrease of 4,856. The quality on offer was good to plain with less weight at the top, together with less merino sheep on offer, which was similar to last week. All the regular processes were in attendance and all were active throughout the sale, and the sale was somewhat erratic in places and the market improved for the light to medium sheep by 5 to $10 per head and the heavy weights by $15 per head. Heavy crossbred ewes made to a top of $130, the well-covered merino ewes to 87 and the very good weathers to a top of 100 it was a general run of mutton to make between 250 and 330 cents. Merino mutton to average between 290 and 350. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks for that, Chris. Let's go to Wagga Lambs and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 35,000 lambs and 11,000 sheep sold to a few less buyers with major domestic competition patchy. Not all export buyers made a purchase or operated fully. Despite this, heavy lambs sold to stronger demand. Trade lambs sold to erratic competition with longer wool lambs discounted heavily at times, causing big price variations in the market. Trade lambs were 6 to $10 cheaper, 20 to 21 158 to 178 22 to 24 175 to 206 24 to 26 190 to 215 heavy lambs were firmed to seven dollars dearer 26 to 30 218 to 253 over 30 kilos 252 to 328 20 store lambs sold to weak demand 65 dollars to 128 merino trades 134 to 180 the heavy merinos 192 to 214 merino hoggets 98 dollars to 160 crossbreds 110 to 165 i'm leanne dax for mla Thanks very much for that, Leanne. That's all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Interesting development in a vaccine for cattle, STDs. Go read about that on ABC Rural Online or listen to the Country Hour tomorrow. We'll tell you more about that. Thank you for all of your involvement in today's show. It's been genuinely fascinating to know what you see as important. Thanks for joining us. Catch you tomorrow.